Welcome to the Lead and Follow podcast. I'm your host, Sharna Fabiano, author of the book, Lead and Follow. And I'm pleased to bring you the latest research, insights, and educational techniques in the emerging field of followership to help you connect and collaborate better with the people around you, whether you're leading or following. Please do leave us a review in your favorite podcast app, and thanks so much for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Tom Klaus. Tom has been a nonprofit organization leader for his entire career, and as you will soon see, he is deeply passionate about the role of nonprofits to create sustainable social change through collective change leadership. Since 2013, he has worked under his own consulting practice, Tenacious Change, which helps people, organizations, and communities lead change for the greater good. Together with longtime collaborator Dr. Ed Saunders, he developed and tested an original change approach known as the Tenacious Change Approach. I'm eager to open the conversation today so that Tom can share his wisdom with us about relationships, trust, collaboration, and why the ability to both lead and follow is so crucial to lasting positive change. Tom, it's a real pleasure to have you today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sharna. I have really been looking forward to this. So, hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Wonderful. Me too. I've heard you describe your work not only as change leadership, but as collective change leadership. And that phrase really stands out in my mind. So I'm just going to kind of jump right in here and ask you to speak a little bit about that phrase. I feel like collective anything implies a lot of power. So I'll just start by asking you, What does collective change leadership mean for you? Well, collective change leadership is not so much power in my mind as it is that when we come together and we're working together in a collaborative way, we're doing that collectively and we are, we are sharing power in the very best sense of the word. When I think about how leaders and followers interact on that, it's, it is, uh, it's not a binary choice. I mean, there, there are not leaders only and followers only, but in fact, um, they, people that are necessary that are playing both roles if change is going to happen and be sustained. Thanks for that clarification. I think when I hear collective leadership, it automatically, I try to think of, well, then what's collective followership? You know, I, I come from a dance background, so I think of the partnership at one-to-one, but you're talking about groups, so that makes it a lot more complex. Could you maybe just like share a little bit more about those dynamics, you know, working in groups with both leading and following? Yeah, I love again the illustration of dance and and how you bring that out. If ballroom dance is an elegant partnership between two people, then collective leadership is an elegant partnership, if you will, among many people together that that come together and participate in this, if you will, a group dance. I don't know if we call that a line dance or what, <laughs> but, but, a, but a group dance in, in how they move forward in leading change in their community, their organization, or their system. And, and so people really have to be willing to take the lead and people have to be willing to step back from the lead and assume the follower role. People that lead don't always have all the answers. 
And they have to be humble enough to take on the mantle of followership. I know we're always talking about the mantle of leadership, right? But there's a mantle of followership that comes into play. Uh, and, and that is that as we take on that mantle of followership, then, then, then what we do is we let those others who, who have something to contribute and, and ideas to share and, and, and things to call forth for the, uh, for the good of the group to really step up into that position of leadership and be able to animate those ideas as well. And so when leaders and followers work together, they form this collective change leadership circle or group or whatever you want to call the infrastructure. Uh, and, and, and I want to be clear about that. A collective change leadership group is, is less about a well-defined structure. It's not a, it's not a, a, a particular thing. It is, it is more about how people work together and how they lead. It doesn't matter to me what people call it, steering committee, coalition, collective impact, you name it. But it's really about how they function together in making change come about. I'm really intrigued by your concept of collective change followership. And, uh, and I've thought about that since you first mentioned that to me actually some time ago outside <laughs> of this podcast. And, and I'm, I'm intrigued by that because implicit in, my, in this idea of collective change leadership is this idea that, that everyone is a leader. Uh, and it's just that we may not all be leaders at the same time, and yeah. we may st- we have to step back and follow while o- and allow others to step forward. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to keep thinking about collective change followership. I'm quite intrigued <laughs> by that. Yeah, you know, I, I, this is what I love about these conversations is you know you know you offer a concept and then that kind of like connects neurons in my brain and like oh what about this con- concept. And I also love that idea of, or the gesture of any one given leader, like stepping back to allow another to take that position, even if temporarily. We actually have a term for that in dance. You know, a lot of tango dancers like to switch roles. And so there's two ways to do that. And these are kind of playful terms. I'll just throw them out just for fun. You can steal the lead, right? Which is in the instant moment, kind of switching your direction of your energy. And then the other way to do it is to give the lead, right? Which is a little bit more like stepping back, like withdrawing the direction, right? And then when the other person senses that, that sort of, there's a little bit of gap of time where another person can then start to give energy or to give direction. You know that my wife and I do some ballroom dancing, of course, not much of the pandemic, but um, I can't say that I've heard those terms. I have heard the term give the lead. I haven't heard the term steal the lead. But I love I love that because it really does illustrate what happens many times when you when you bring groups together to try to create create change. Is that some people are too eager to steal the lead. <laughs> yeah. And 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 not enough people are willing to give the lead. Oh, I love those. Yeah, it's sort of a niche uh, sub sub subculture of people who play with you know leading and following, and um, you know sometimes stealing the lead works. You know it's fast and efficient, and sometimes you just do that for a moment, and it, it's what the moment requires. But getting back to this idea of stepping back, you know, in a group, I I love that that could like 
you know, become part of the leadership skill set, right, is like in addition to the standard, you know, directing and organizing, you're like, oh, actually, a leader needs to also know when to deliberately put themselves in a follower role, right, so that that sharing can happen. But I imagine maybe that might be hard for some some leaders, even if they like the idea that they've been in the position for so long, they maybe struggle with that. Is that your experience or what have you noticed there? Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, most often I've seen this in really well-defined hierarchies that have depended for many, many years on the traditional leader follower roles. And I understand how that happens is you, we get used to doing things the way we do them. And it becomes very difficult for us to break out of that uh, that thinking, that mindset, and and try on new behaviors. Positional leaders in in those structures sometimes struggle to really grow their trust in followers, mm. and then that trust has to be there. In fact, if they want to release power, they have traditionally held, and then step aside so followers can step into the leadership role. So it's 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 really hard. I mean, because. In, in many traditional hierarchies, positional leaders really hold a lot of power. And for them to think about, well, what happens if I give up this power? What happens if I share this power? It can be a little bit intimidating and a little bit, a little bit scary. However, I will say that I'm currently working with a large public agency with a very traditional hierarchy in the Northeast. Uh, part of the U.S. Uh, and I'm exceptionally proud of the effort being made by the people in the leader role there to um, to build trust with the um, the people in the follower role, not just them trusting, being trusted by them, but them trusting the followers as well. It's It's been an adjustment for them, but they're really growing incrementally to trust people in the follower role and to work collaboratively with them. Uh, one of the results that I'm seeing, in fact, that is really neat is that people in the leader role are coming together with people in the follower role to do research on one of the most challenging issues in any organization. Are you ready for these? I'm ready. Compensation, benefits, and workload. Wow. Who knew? Amazing. I mean, <laughs> it is amazing. And so three years ago, when I started working with this group of folks, and I, and I think back to the very first meeting. I was on the ground working with the agency for about a year before we called a meeting of uh, the leaders and followers together. And in that first meeting, I just remember sitting, standing there looking at this group of people that were looking at each other out of the corners of their eyes and not sure, you know, who they could talk to, who they should trust. And at that time, it was unimaginable that they could have the kind of conversation they're having right now around compensation benefits and workload and actually be working together to do the research to compare, you know, how do they really compare with similar agencies in their state? It's very exciting to see. I, I know it's possible for positional leaders to do that. Mm -hmm. It's also possible for positional followers to grow their trust in positional leaders. But wow, it takes some time. Yeah. Wow. That's so exciting, Tom. And now I feel like I want to ask you about 10 questions at the same time. So I'm going to try to organize them for listeners. The first thing I want to ask is maybe a really obvious question, but you know, the more you speak about trust and this transition, which is challenging, but you know, really rewarding, I feel like uh, it, it might be useful for us just to remember like why it's worth it. You know, why is lasting change necessarily collective change, 
right? Versus unilateral, just like one person saying, okay, we're doing this. Why does that not tend to work or last for very long versus the the collective process? Well, the collective process is, it really has to do with a sense of ownership of the change. Mm -hmm. So when people, both those in the leader and follower roles have participated in meaningful ways in the change, when they have been part of the decision-making and when they have had a voice on those things that Mm -hmm. most directly impact them, they tend to develop a sense of ownership of the change. And then what's really cool is that when the change happens, they will do everything they can to defend it and to keep things from going back to the way they were before, a phenomenon Mm -hmm. that sometimes is referred to as snapback, snapping back to the way things were before. Right. You just don't get that from people mm-hmm. when they are asked to, and I think maybe this is kind of what you're referring to, to buy in to change, you know, that somebody mm-hmm. else comes up with, here's the problem, here's the solution, I need you to buy into it so that we can make all things better. But but you just don't get that when people are just asked to buy in, because buy-in usually comes with an extremely high price tag that the people who are creating the deal that they <laughs> want people to buy in oftentimes don't see. It means that someone else has designed a solution to your problem, and now they want you to buy it. And that's all they really want from you. You can probably pick up from my voice that I'm really not a fan of buy-in. <laughs> uh, in fact, I've been known to rant about it, and, and, and I'm going to try to keep a rant from coming on here. Uh, but I've seen it do too much long-term damage to people in communities, And for this reason, I've really worked hard to make the tenacious change approach a no buy-in zone. Mm -hmm. We don't use the term. We don't teach it. We teach instead how to facilitate ownership of change by the community organization or system. You know, I think that is such a powerful choice that you've made. And language is so powerful. Just hearing you describe the difference there, it's almost like, night and day, right? So thank you so much for spelling that out. And it it also occurs to me that, you know, that we need to be really responsible with that. I kind of keep coming back to this term power for some reason, right? That when we really have the ownership, that, you know, that can be a very positive force. But, you know, if the process isn't, you know, inclusive, it doesn't really account for, you know, important factors, like it can also go wrong, right? It could potentially then be defending something that isn't necessarily good for the community. Um, I mean, have you seen that happen? Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. uh, Yeah. I mean, um, trying to facilitate um, ownership-based change is Mm -hmm. what I call it. Trying to facilitate ownership-based change requires an extraordinary intentionality because the tendency that we have is to always slip back towards buy-in because mm-hmm. that's easy and it's cheap and it's it's less complicated and less messy. And so we have to be very intentional about really working to facilitate ownership-based change. And unfortunately, though, <laughs> there are there are those kind of odd things that happen. I do a case study, actually, in um, in the Tenacious Change Approach course that I've been developing. And it's, it's a case study of a program that is so incredibly popular, not just in the United States, but around the world. Mm-hmm. The irony is, 
that the program, through a whole series of evaluations dating back to the 1990s, right, has been shown not to be effective. It doesn't actually work. It doesn't deliver on what it says it's going to do. However, people love the program. They love it. They like it. They support it. They put up signs outside the community that, you know, <laughs> welcomes people to, to their community because it's one of these proud communities that supports this program. Mm. Uh, and, and actually, you know, everybody has an opinion on this program. And I'm not going to name the program, but, <laughs> but you might be familiar with it. All right. Yeah. And, and so uh, everyone has an opinion on that program and some believe it is a wonder and a miracle and they, and they, and they love it to death and others believe it is a complete and total train wreck. Mm-hmm. What I find really interesting is not, not the question of whether or not the program works or doesn't work. Mm-hmm. What I find fascinating is that despite all of the negatives that are lined up against this program, Mm -hmm. that it is beloved by so many people and that they will, they will fight to keep it in their communities. And, and at a time when the federal government had thrown like 9 billion, that's not an exaggeration, about $9 billion into this program over a 10 year period. Wow. uh, When these evaluations were beginning to come out, they eventually lost much of that funding mm. and everybody thought, well, this is the end of the program. It's gone. It's dead. You know, it's not going to exist anymore. Holy mm-hmm. cow. No. If you go to their website, <laughs> it's not only, it's not only survived, it is thriving. Mm. It is all over the United States and it's in a, I think I, I want to be careful. I'm quoting this. I want to say that they're, they, they're now saying they're in like 150 countries. Oh my goodness. It's it's really staggering and it's extraordinary. Like, but but this is a program that evidence says has not been as effective as they claim. So why? Mm. Why does that program not only survive but thrive? I think that ownership is the answer to that question. That at some level people like the program, but here's here's the other piece that's really important about that. At some level they perceived it to have a value to them mm-hmm. and to their children, that was extraordinary. And because of that perception of value, they really stood in support of the program and just would not let anything happen to it. And so they, would, they fought to defend it and to keep it in their communities, and many communities have as well. Yeah, super fascinating. It, it actually, I, I, wonder, I wonder if ownership, you know, broadly is almost like a synonym for collective followership, right? I think of followership as like support in a way is like getting behind something and like, you know, supporting it. Um, And, you know, in this case, like for better or worse, like these masses of people, masses of you would call them followers, perhaps, you know, have really just committed to this program, you know, for reasons of their own. Uh, Not Sharna, you're making me think about that collective followership thing again. Uh, that's really that's a really interesting idea. Maybe maybe what collective followership, maybe what ownership is, is collective followership. That's a really interesting mm-hmm. thought. I guess the other thing I want to say about this is that I don't want the tenacious change approach used to facilitate ownership mm-hmm. of things that just don't work or aren't aren't good for right. the community. I mean, the yeah, the whole reason I have dedicated my life to nonprofit work 
is because I mm-hmm. believe in this ethereal idea of the greater good. And, <laughs> and I believe that nonprofit organizations more than any other really have a contribution to make to the greater good that all of us can benefit from. So the, the tenacious change approach is really, is really presenting a paradigm shift at least what I believe is Mm -hmm. a paradigm shift from buy-in, which we are extraordinarily comfortable with here in the U.S., Mm -hmm. uh, but it's really a form of manipulation. And and, and the paradigm shift is from buy-in to ownership, which invites people to participate and have a voice and a say in how the change affects them. I totally agree with you about it being paradigm shifting. And the implication of the invitation there, again, that word really resonates for me in terms of dance, because of course, we invite others to dance with us, but it just implies consent and agency, right? Which is kind of a fundamental foundation of, I think, you know, an equitable community, a just society, and um, holding up those two things that, you know, buy-in versus ownership is so important at the beginning, right? Of thinking about changing anything from, you know, small to to grand scale. I think this might kind of follow up on that idea. I want to ask you about something else I find so useful in your work, which is this appreciation of content versus context. And you've heard you speak about content experts versus context experts and how you know, these two groups of people can have productive conversation, productive lead and follow. And I I wonder if you could talk about where that comes from, how that uh, contributes to the tenacious change approach and maybe helps us shift this paradigm a little bit more. Well, first of all, I want to give a a shout out to the late uh, Brenda Zimmerman, who I got to hear uh, in one of her last public presentations before her untimely death. Um, at a Tamarack Institute conference um, a few years ago. And in that presentation, that was a life-changing, I mean, that was, that was life-changing for me to hear her in that uh, keynote address and then participate in a workshop with her from the perspective that it was so affirming of the direction that I was moving. And, and I, I hadn't really heard many people really talking about this. And to hear her using some of the same language and affirming some of the ideas that uh, that I had been playing with, along with my colleague Ed Saunders, for a number of years, was just extraordinary. And I believe it was from from Brenda Zimmerman that I heard first heard the terms content experts and context experts. My colleagues in Canada have another another interesting way of referring to context experts in in the use of the, ter- of the of the phrase it's not about us without us and we have to remember that there are 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 well we need we let me begin with this idea we need experts and here in the US we are in love with experts i mean i mean <laughs> we are an expert culture and usually people don't want to hear from you true, unless true. you are considered an expert in something right so uh, however, yes. it is important how we define expertise in community work. We typically mm-hmm. think of people who are content experts, and these are the people who have the know-how. And, uh, and some colleagues of mine in Florida refer to this as learned experience. That is that they have gone to school, they've studied, they have practiced, they have interned, they have uh, done residencies mm-hmm. around how to solve problems and facilitate change. 
And our infatuation with content experts like this makes us miss the fact that they are only half, maybe even less, of the equation. Mm. (laughs) We also need context experts. And these are the people who know about the issue and need for change because they live it every single day of their lives. And when we come together for change, whether it's in communities or organizations or systems, we need to come together as context experts who know about the issue and content experts who have some know-how about how to address the issue. And when we do, we have a lot to learn from one another and from, uh, from one another and with one another. And part of what we need to do is learn how to work with one another because there is a pre-existing and learned power dynamic that we need to unlearn if we're going to successfully work together. Can I give you a quick illustration of, of that in action? Please, please. So, so a few yeah. years ago, um, I was a keynote speaker at, uh, at an event uh, in the Midwest with the Department of Health and Human Services um, uh, Agency. And they actually were trying to, to change how they did child welfare in, in their counties and the managed care that they provided, you know, from the, from the social mm-hmm. work case managers. And one of the things that they did is that they formed these county teams that worked on coming with, up with new solutions to, to problems that they were facing in the child welfare system. And so their team was comprised of Judges, psychologists, caseworkers, law enforcement, you name it. A lot of content experts. And it was comprised of alumni of the child welfare system, which included people now in their, uh, as young adults who had been moved into foster care, and mm-hmm. parents who who now uh, had experienced some transformation in their own lives, but their children had been removed from the home. Now, mm-hmm. if you just take that mix of people and you throw them all together without any kind of preparation, you're asking for a lot of problems, right? Yeah, wow. <laughs> because that's where the power dynamic comes out. Who am I if I'm if I'm a if I'm a meth addict who has had my child removed from me? At some point in my life. And now all of a sudden I'm sitting in this room with maybe even the judge, you know, that Mm -hmm. that ordered that separation. Who am I to speak to that judge and tell them anything that they don't already that I think that they don't already know? Who am I to to speak to the Mm -hmm. psychologist? And at the same time, if I'm a content expert and I have been used mm-hmm. to working with meth addicts and, 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 and people that have really struggled in terms of, of, their, of their lives, I maybe have formed an impression that it's hard to get around uh, and to open mm-hmm. myself to listen to them and to hear them. So actually, there's preparation that has to be done on both ends of that. And it's not quick and it's not easy. And it takes a little bit of work. And, and one of the things that was one of the most special things for me is I got to sit in on mm-hmm. a prep meeting for the... Uh, uh, for the context experts in this case. These were the, the children, the alumni, and, and the, mm-hmm. the people who had had their children removed from their home. It was one of the most extraordinary things that I, I've ever seen because the power, the expertise that all of them have is in their story. That is the expertise. Yeah. It is the one piece that nobody else in that room is going to have. And so they worked with them around. Uh, there was a facilitator there who 
themselves had been in the in the welfare system, child welfare system. And and that person worked with them around, first of all, let's begin by telling our stories to one another. Now let's write out their stories. Now let's look at what our stories are saying and and ask, you know, is there a, what is the lesson that comes out of this that we can share when we get into that room with everybody else? And, and that empowered them and helped them understand that they have an expertise that nobody else has. And on the flip side of that, there was some preparation, some training that was being done uh, with the content experts to, to make it easier mm-hmm. for them to hear the context experts when they came into the room. Unless we're willing to really invest in that kind of preparation, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to pat ourselves on the back when we just dump the context and content experts in the room. And we're going to go, oh, look at us. We did a really great job. We brought them together. And, but, but if we step yeah. back and look, what we oftentimes see is the content experts dominate by virtue of their power and their presence and mm-hmm. many times their number. And the context experts just kind of wilt into the background and they just, they, they go along to get along because that's the, yeah. that's the path yeah. of least resistance um, and, and the path of fear. Yeah. Wow. That's such a, a... A wonderful example. I just, I, you know, I think I could ask you again a million more questions about that. But it reminds me of the, uh, you know, uh, if I were kind of to imagine that as as a dance, like so, something we struggle with in the dance community is there tends to be a bias towards teaching leaders, right? The much as in regular society, we're like, well, here's what you do, you know, and you're basically speaking to the leader. Um, and then the followers, you know, you just follow along, you know, um, but that doesn't really result in the great dancing, right? So, you know, even, you know, as as teachers, like I think it's important as dance teachers for us to remember we're always addressing the follower skills as well. And so that kind of reminds me of this preparing of both sides, right, in order to have the conversation or to hear each other in order to dance well together. Both need to be brought together, right? And that's really the artistry and the skill of the facilitator. I'm really glad you mentioned that because, <laughs> because I'm thinking back to a, uh, uh, we used to go uh, to a, um, a, a Sunday afternoon dance class. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that the teacher did there that was very different from many other teachers we saw was that first she would work with the people that were supposed to be the leaders. And, and mm-hmm. let's just name it that oftentimes in ballroom dance, it tends to be the male, right? So, yes. so all of these guys are lined up and she's teaching us how to lead in that, the particular mm-hmm. formation that we're doing, right? And, but then she goes to the other side of the room and she works with the, with the followers in that situation and she mm-hmm. helps them. And it's always, always fascinating to listen in. I found myself listening in more carefully when she was teaching the <laughs> followers because that helped me understand what I did differently as a leader. Yeah. And, and Absolutely. it never occurred to me, gosh, I'm getting so much from you today, Sharna. Thank you so much. <laughs> I, 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 I just never really saw that before you mentioned it. That is just really, that's, that's great. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same about your story there. And um, I, I, speaking of story, I actually love that you presented that as a source of expertise, right? And a source of knowledge, right? That's so precious. And that changes the outcome, right? When we're able to facilitate a space where the story is treated with respect and honor, 
that changes the conversation, which then changes perhaps the decisions, right, that come out of that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and by the way, that's kind of tough for a guy that was really uh, trained to be just the facts, you know? So it's <laughs> like, well, wait a minute, you know, I need to quantify that somehow. And mm, yeah. yeah, well, I, I've actually done a complete three, well, 180, not 360, one, uh, 180. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I love qualitative research. Uh, and, um, mm-hmm. because it's, it's really about the power of the story. It's about, you know, what is, what is emerging from the, from the, not just one story, but what's emerging from 40 stories that is, is teaching mm-hmm. us something about what can be or should be or needs to be. Yeah, absolutely. It's like left and right brain, sort of different ways of understanding a situation. Right. right? And when we have both, then, you know, we just make more holistic better, I think, decisions. Yeah, absolutely. That just reminds me of something I read in on your website, actually, that I, I just found it so inspiring. I want to include it here in the podcast because I think it might inspire others. And perhaps you want to add on to this. So um, here it is. I'm, I'm just going to read this short piece of text. Quote, I'm convinced the secret to almost any good thing happening among people is relational trust. Collaboration is both a science and an art. It requires each party to know and have confidence in what it brings to the relationship, to prioritize and honor mutual trust and respect, and to continuously seek ways to create value in the relationship and work for both parties. Unquote. I think I find these words so powerful, partly because of the phrase relational trust and I know that in a lot of the leadership literature, there's this, you know, now it's kind of like a buzzword, establish trust, you know, create rapport as if they could kind of do it by themselves. Like you just go into a group of people and you make trust happen. And it it sounds really silly, I think, when you call it out like that. But still, it's really overlooked, again, in the literature that there's other people involved and you you can't just make it by yourself. It is a relational process. So um, you'd mentioned trust earlier as kind of a key, and I know, you know, relationships is something you you kind of specialize in, like, facilitating the building of relationships. So maybe you could share a little more about this phenomenon, how you see it in your work, and, you know, how leaders and followers co-create the trust together. Well, first of all, sure. Are you sure I wrote that stuff? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. that. That sounds smarter than I am, actually. So that's, I think uh, it sounds just as smart as you are, Tom. Okay. All right. Well, uh, so oh, I love I love to talk about relational trust. Mm. So let me begin with this. Everything I, I learned about relationships and relational trust, I learned from seventh graders. <laughs> love um, it. <laughs> yeah. Love it. So, so I mean, it's it's absolutely true, though. Uh, now, I would love to say that I've always lived up to everything they taught me. That's not true. But <laughs> I, but everything that they have taught me about relationships, I, I really did learn in seventh grade. My career journey has been a very fascinating one, mm-hmm. and and it took a it took an interesting turn in 1991 uh-huh. uh, when I I moved into the world of teen pregnancy prevention, which is a subset of sexuality education. Mm-hmm. And in that field, I was working with a group of folks who were developing a teen pregnancy prevention program in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, that was known as It Takes Two. Now, eventually, it became quite popular, and we ended up replicating it in about 23 different states in the 1990s. But one of the things that we were doing is we were building that airplane as we were flying it. 
Mm-hmm. And and so there was a moment in time when we were trying to figure out how do we teach seventh graders about healthy relationships? And this idea kind of hit, well, let's just ask them what they see as being healthy in relationships. So the question that began the activity was, think about the best relationship you've ever seen and give me one word that describes it. Mm-hmm. And so at first we would just start writing down everything. And one of my colleagues, uh, a man uh, who remains as a good friend today, Katie Burkett, Mm -hmm. uh, took all of that data. That guy was writing these things down furiously on a piece of paper. This was was a little bit before, you know, really portable computers. Mm -hmm. And he's writing these things down like crazy on a piece of paper. And he's inputting them into, into the computer when we get back to the office. And we decided to do an analysis. And by this time, we have thousands of responses from all of these seventh graders in the Des Moines Public Schools. And we're trying to look at what are the themes? What, what is every school saying? What, what are the kids saying to mm-hmm. us? And there, there emerged from this three concepts, trust, respect, and mm-hmm. honesty, or integrity, uh, honesty as integrity. And so what we did with those is that we began to build the activity around this triangle we draw. And whenever they would mention respect, respect would go on one side of the triangle. Trust would go on the other side of the triangle. Then integrity would go at the bottom because the thing that we were beginning to realize, uh, uh, that was beginning to emerge from, Mm -hmm. from, from that experience, was that the degree to which you could establish a relationship based on integrity and honesty was the degree to which you would grow respect and you would grow trust. Mm. And that really became a very powerful image for us to teach young people about that. And strangely enough, our evaluations began to show that one of the most memorable things that we taught young people was what we call the relationship triangle. Now, about 10 years later, a professor at Iowa State University in Ames, Iowa, um, finds the relationship triangle. Mm. And she says, hey, you know, uh, she and she found me and she called me up and she says, would you be willing to work with me in, in testing this framework with college students? And, and her, her area of study was actually hookup culture in, on, on college campuses. Wow. And, so, and so I said, sure, you know, why not? So um, we set up, um, we worked together to set up uh, uh, several different um, kinds of experiences where we bring students together. And we would, uh, we would take them through a series of questions, and then we ended it pretty much the same way we did with the seventh graders, mm-hmm. which was working in these individual groups. Now, tell us what you're learning about what goes into making a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. And you know what was fascinating? It was the same three things that emerged plus one more. And the one more that, that it included made all the sense in the world because they weren't seventh graders anymore. Right. And and so the concept was mutuality. Wow. Amazing. That yeah, that you had to have, you know, trust, respect, and honesty really made for a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. But for that to be really mm-hmm. healthy, it had to be coming from both parties. And so I know, long story to get me to this particular point, but the focus on relationships, particularly the mutuality of relational trust, Mm -hmm. is absolutely critical. It cannot be one way. I can't just, as a leader, be trusting followers. Followers need to be trusting me as a leader as well. And, and And when I step out of the leadership role into the follower role, I need to be able to trust the person who's stepping into the leadership role. Mm-hmm. So, so the relational trust is absolutely critical. As mm-hmm. we said to the young people those 25 years ago now, mm-hmm. you can't make anybody trust you. Mm. 
you can't make anybody respect you. You can make them fear you, but mm-hmm. they're not the same thing. Right. Right. And so uh, you only build trust and respect through a, a very conscious and intentional decision to act it with integrity towards that person. Mm-hmm. And and to let integrity really be the uh, the bellwether of your of your relationship. So that focus on relationship, and interestingly enough, um, Dr. Uh, Ed Saunders, my colleague, mm-hmm. he was the evaluator for the It Takes Two program, <laughs> and he was intimately involved in that program as well, and in in helping us think through the design and so on. And so I think it was kind of a natural thing when we began to work on what eventually became the tenacious change approach mm-hmm. that, that and, and we began to hammer out this question of, well, how is it that communities actually change? Yeah. How do we describe that? What is that process that this concept of relational trust really came back into it? Because at the very heart of all four of those transitions or mm-hmm. those pieces of, of awareness raising, legitimization, transformation, and finally normalization, mm-hmm. none of those happen if there's not a really high level of relational trust within the community. Yeah, I so appreciate how you're emphasizing that you can't make someone else trust you. I mean, it, it again sounds really obvious to say that, but sometimes I find the obvious things to be the most striking because it really is the individual's choice, both when and ultimately whether or not to trust. There's the phenomenon of giving the benefit of the doubt right up front. And in fact, a lot of dancers consider that part of their training to be able to choose to trust a stranger. But other times we just need to wait and see, you know, we're not ready yet for a variety of reasons. And I can think of many groups in this country who have experienced trust being broken over and over again in the most violent of ways. And so there's good reason not to trust uh, someone, especially a group or a, a leader who is unfamiliar. But remembering that, you know, remembering that people have their own trust agency, so to speak, right, their own choice in that, I think it maybe can help us remember to stand even more firmly in our own integrity and to be honest and to be transparent, even when it's difficult, because as you point out, rightly, it's actually the only thing that works. In one of the more spectacular moments of my life, I was invited to attend a meeting at the White House. And it was actually around uh, a monitoring tool that we developed for the um, Tenacious Change approach. And I remember this one woman chastising, chastising the others in the the room. And she said, you know, we've got to stop this. We've got to stop going into communities, giving them 20 bucks to take our surveys. And so that we can go out and publish a paper or get tenure. And then turn around and do nothing else for the community. We got to stop this. And I think that part of what really impacted me about that is is thinking about how that kind of activity really can break the trust. You know, people people will buy in buy into something again, and I'm using that in in not a very happy way. Uh, People will buy into something with a hope. And the hope is that this may be something that will really be transformative for our community, for our organization, or for our system. And so they buy into it. And then all of a sudden they realize, wait a minute, all you wanted 
was a bigger paycheck. All you wanted was a paper. All you wanted was tenure at your university. All you wanted was to prepare this company better to get a higher price when you sell it. Where does that leave us? And the trust is broken. And, and that is incredibly devastating to people. And, and, and so I, I just, yeah, uh, that, that you're, you're, but, but we are willing to give people the benefit of the doubt, but we have to understand that the benefit of the doubt is a gift. It is a gift that people give us. And how we treat that gift makes all the difference in the world. We don't want to go slamming it to the ground because that's going to break trust and it's never, that benefit's not going to be accrued to us again, right? It's not going to be allocated to us again. Thank you so much for sharing that story. What a powerful experience and for sure a really powerful lesson for all of us as well. I know I've learned a ton in this conversation. I have lots of really great new connections running through my mind. And I just wanted to ask if there's anything else you'd like to leave listeners with here as we wrap up the conversation for today. I, I guess I would just leave, leave folks with this idea that, that change is not something we do for people. It's not something we do to people or organizations or communities or systems. It's something that we do with people. You know, we have to remember that, that there's many types of power and uh, there's the power over, there's the power within that people can have that believe, to believe that it's possible for them to do something. There's power with as people come together and share their power and, and begin to, to make some changes. Power within and power with leads to the power to make a change. And we can't force change because then we're not really creating genuine ownership. We're just simply doing buy-in again. Change happens when people are invited to participate, when they have meaningful roles, when they have a voice in the decisions about the change, which most directly impact them, and when they embrace, embrace the change as it is happening. So I... I think that's all I got. This has been fun, Sharna. I have really <laughs> enjoyed fun. this. Yeah, thank you for that. That's I think it's really a a, a wonderful summary, you know, of, of of this not only the conversation, but just the the process of of change, which I think whether we're not whether or not we're changed professionals, we're all in the middle of it right now. This is sort of an era of constant change. Oh, and boy. so we're involved in it one way or the other. And um you know, for me, there's always there. There's more and more this sense of you know, if I'm really holding myself in integrity and trusting right from the beginning, because if I want other people to trust me, I have to trust them and invite them in the process. I I can't predict the outcome, you know, ultimately, and there is some that's scary. I think our ability to be courageous in the fact of that, right, is just to acknowledge that as the reality. If we really hold ourselves to these important and effective principles, right, it's not just that they sound good, relational trust, collective leadership, collective followership, it's that they work. And in fact, what I'm learning from you is that these are the only things that work. But if we want to do this thing that works, Part of that is understanding that no one individual will have absolute control over the outcome. No one person can fix it. Yeah, exactly. That's right. We are, we are all in this together. 
Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, Tom, for making that real for us and for sharing your experience and insights. Where's the best place for people to connect with you and to learn more about your work? Oh, well, there's uh, several ways they can connect with me. I am on LinkedIn. Just, you know, um, search for me there, Tom Klaus. I have a couple of different websites going on. Uh, one that really um, uh, focuses on the tenacious change approach itself and where you can download a white paper about it is www.tenaciouschange.info. All right. And then if you want to learn more about me, you're welcome to find me at www.tomklausphd.com. And I am there. And you can always just send me an email, twklaus at tenaciouschange.us. So look at that, four different URLs. That'll drive you nuts, right? (laughs) Thank you, Tom. And I will put all of those in the show notes so you will be able to connect with Tom easily. Thank you once again. It's always a pleasure, and I very much look forward to our next conversation. Likewise, Sharna. Thank you. You have been listening to the Lead and Follow podcast. Special thanks to Glover Gill for composing our music. And thank you to all of our subscribers. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show with a paid subscription. And if your team or organization is interested in followership training, please reach out anytime. I'd love to help.